Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast. Discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina offers a summary of China news every day in your inbox or via a mobile phone app. Go to subchina.com to subscribe to the newsletter or download the app from the Apple App Store or Google Play. SubChina is a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined here in the Seneca South studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina, by Jeremy Goldcorn, heretofore undisclosed author of the state's notoriously discriminatory law, HB2, the so-called bathroom <laughs> bill, uh, which he has actually scurriously and hypocritically attacked on this show when everyone knows he secretly fears nothing, nothing, I say, more than he fears transgender people catching a glimpse of his privates. But you're safe here, Jeremy, in North Carolina. Yeah, I I know. I, unfortunately, I got to go back to Nashville, Tennessee, uh, uh, this afternoon, and I have no <laughs> such protection there. <laughs> but your stay here has been otherwise. I mean, it's pleasant, lovely. North okay. Carolina is delightful. Uh, I'm glad, and uh, I'm I've, I hope you felt at home here in our new studio, our lovely digs. Oh yes. So, so a couple of weeks ago on this podcast, as you will recall, I plugged a book called Eve of a Hundred Midnights. It's a book about the brief, fascinating life of the journalist Melville or Mel Jacoby. Uh, born in 1916 and growing up in Southern California, he attended Stanford. And uh, during his time at that prestigious school, he, he spent a year in Guangzhou in Southern China and traveled around a bit, arriving in uh, a city that was then called Beiping just after the Marco Polo Bridge incident ignited the hot war with Japan. After graduating from Stanford, Mel came back to China and worked as a propagandist for a nationalist government desperate to win Western sympathy for their fight against Japanese imperialism. He also worked as a journalist, both as a photographer and a correspondent in Chongqing. He managed to convince a fellow Stanford grad named Anna Lee Whitmore to join him in China. The two were married in Chongqing, and they went on to have some harrowing adventures in China and in the Philippines. Uh, so today we're chatting with the author of that book, Bill Lasher, a Portland, Oregon-based journalist and writer. Bill, congrats on the book, which I very much enjoyed, and welcome to Seneca. Thanks for having me, and thanks for a compliment on the book. Uh, Bill, can you tell us about your own personal family connection to the subjects of the book, the, your relationship to Mel uh, Jacoby, and how you came to be in possession of his typewriter, and perhaps something about your wonderful grandmother? Yeah, I think I'll start with my grandmother and how I came to possession of the typewriter, because I think that will explain the connection to Mel. I was in my mid-20s, and my grandmother was moving. She was not quite a pack rat, but she had a lot of possessions. So instead of having a housewarming party, she had a house cooling when she moved, and she gave away various possessions. And one of the ones that she gave me was this box that she actually ended up giving me on Christmas. And I opened it up, and I looked inside, and I saw this beautiful Corona 4 typewriter and manufactured in 1930. And 
she said to me, this belonged to my cousin, the war correspondent. And I thought, your cousin, the war correspondent, who's this guy? I've never heard of him. How have I never heard of him? I had wanted to be a journalist all my life. And here I was, 24, 25, just about to start my own career as a journalist. And I hadn't known about this man who had been in my family. And as she told me about him, she unraveled this fascinating tale of this cousin that she loved. He was the oldest of, I, th I believe it was six cousins, and uh, 10 years older than her. And she spoke with this reverence that I hadn't really heard from her before. She wasn't unemotional, but she never was particularly evocative with her emotions. And I was totally fascinating. And so over the next few years, every time I visited her, she'd tell me a little bit more about Mel and she'd pull out another box of old letters that he'd written from China, whether from his time as an exchange in Guangzhou or his time in Chongqing or brief time when he was in Hanoi and Haiphong in uh, what's now Vietnam, but what was then the French Indochina. And really um, told me these snippets of a story that, that I always thought to myself, ah, I should write a book about that. And she said the same thing, but it was always something we kept on the back burner. Chinese are obsessed with the actual degree of relatedness to people, and we have uh, we probably have a specific term for your grandmother's cousin, but uh, your grandmother on w which side and related how? So it was my maternal grandmother, and it ah, was your maternal grandma. her first cousin. So my first cousin twice removed. Ah, your first cousin twice removed. That's what I wanted. That's what I was going for. <laughs> Jeremy, you, you must know the Chinese word for that now. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is putting me on the spot. <laughs> I'm afraid. Uh, I anyway, I mean, I one can almost sense that you felt kind of an invisible bond with Mel, uh, perhaps a little projection even. I mean, maybe because, you know, because of your kinship with him, you were maybe tempted to identify with him a little more than one normally does with the subject of one's uh researches yeah i think that's true i think a lot of my friends and family would say that i became sort of obsessed with him and i i i'd wonder what the reasoning for that was partially the kinship partially the fact that as i read his letters i came to identify with him even more and some of the emotions he had as he sort of matured over so the book covers a course of about five years and i i think that it reminded me a lot of my own youth, although he accomplished a great deal more than I did then. <laughs> or or any of the rest of us. I mean, we, we mere mortals. But were, were you interested in and or connected to China or East Asia, the Second World War, prior to undertaking the writing of this book? You know, to be honest, I, I really wasn't. I mean, I was, I was interested in World War II to an extent. My father had been sort of a World War II buff, the way I think a lot of fathers are. And... Um, he had, in fact, he was a little bit older, and he had enlisted in the army a few weeks before the end of World War II. And so he was always interested, but he was more interested in the European theater, and that's more what I heard about as a child and growing up. And then I, I studied history in, in undergrad, but, but it was sort of more focused on sort of thematic issues of sort of the articulation of national identity and nationalism. And it wasn't really focused on Asia or East Asia or China specifically. And, and so really... It wasn't something I was terribly familiar with. I had a brother that lived there for a year, but beyond that, um, you know, I never visited. There, or there being China, or yeah, he lived in Beijing. Oh, cool! I wonder if I knew the guy. <laughs> it's possible. Bill, can you tell us about the process of researching this book? What was involved? Uh, you had that spectacular trove of correspondences, uh, but also photos uh, and film reels. How long did you take in researching the book, and how much travel was involved? 
Yeah, you know, there's a lot of different answers to that question. In one sense, because I heard about the story about 10 years ago, uh, you could say 10 years. But in terms of when I said, okay, I'm going to write a book about this and I'm going to make this sort of my full-time work, that was about four and a half years. And that involved everything from, you know, sort of scouring those letters and photos for every clue I could and then connecting them to library research locally and traveling to places in the U.S. like the Hoover Institution at Stanford or the National Archives or um, Teddy White's archives at Harvard. And there were also some papers at Yale. Those were all things, though, that I had to sort of squeeze into a sort of normal life of being an underemployed freelance journalist. And so I could only travel when I could. And so I tried to do as much as I could from here in Portland. I did go to China and the Philippines after I had my book deal to sort of retrace the steps that Mel took and Annalee took and see as best as I could uh, the places that they had been. Although, of course, particularly in Chongqing, you know, history has sort of rapidly vanished in a way in the sort of physical form of that city. And so I was trying to get a feeling for what it was like, but also sort of how things had changed. Uh, so let, let's talk about Mel and, and about Annalie. But let's talk first about Mel, because, you know, he's really at the center of the book. What, what was he all about? What, what, what made him tick? You flick it at him having written some things in his personal correspondences that were maybe unkind or even flat out kind of you know colonial or imperialistic. But but the the general portrayal of him in the book is is someone very deeply sympathetic with Chinese and and other Asian people and you know and and obviously a highly talented individual. So what was what was Mel all about? And then let's move on to Annalie after that. I think Mel was was about you know he was sort of an internationalist and he was eager to see the world from a very young age, and that became sort of more defined when he won this opportunity to go to Guangzhou. And that sort of opened his eyes to a sort of non-European culture and non-Western culture, although, of course, he was on a campus where there were a lot of other Americans. And when you talk about the sort of colonial attitudes, I, I think that's sort of evident in his sort of youth and arriving in China and and feeling, you know, sort of a mixed attitude about, on the one hand, you know, here's this fascinating new place. On the other hand, he's sort of coming to terms with the fact that conditions were a little impoverished there. There was, you know, visibly ill people around him and, you know, the food was quite different and things like that. And he, you sort of watch over the years, this sort of realization that forms in his mind that, you know, he actually enjoyed those differences and appreciated them and saw the value in them. I think that if you have the opportunity to read his, get into his mind, you see he was someone who was sort of constantly seeking. And one of the things he, he sought was was an understanding of the rest of the world. And that carried through when he returned to Stanford. And he he thought there was a strong importance in international understanding and cooperation. And that was one of the things that drove him to go back to China and to write about the war that had begun when he was there as a student and to, to sort of relay that back to the United States in a way, you know, to, with the understanding that American media was really focused on Europe and the sort of perceived scourge that was, and real scourge that was happening in Europe in the late 1930s. But he knew that uh, there couldn't be sort of a ignorance of what was happening in the Far East. But, you know, he evolved into a passionate journalist and to someone who really had that 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 sense of I, I don't know if I'd say a sense of justice but at least a sense that you know he wasn't exactly aligned with either side although at times he would 
seem sort of tightly entwined with them. Bill, can you actually talk about perhaps some of the formative events in in his thinking on China? You know, his stay in Guangzhou as a student, his travels, friendships, his early brushes with Japanese authorities. In terms of changing and shaping his his worldview and his view of China, perhaps you could mention some of the more important experiences he had. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the Japanese early on after he was in 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 what was then Beiping. He uh, went to Japan. He went through occupied Manchuria, and he was sort of watching as best he could out win- windows that soldiers had sort of forced closed, and saw the sort of pouring in of troops and the militarization there. And then when he reached Japan, he witnessed a lot of rallies, a lot of that sort of sense of militarization that uh, and the sort of patriotic cause. And he had this sense of, of sort of being followed the whole time he was there. And I think that developed a lot of suspicions in his mind towards the Japanese that lingered when he returned to China and, and became quickly involved with people like Randall Gould, who was a oft-attacked journalist in Shanghai. And then uh, in, he, he got work in, in Chongqing soon after that as a both as a freelance journalist, but also as a broadcaster for the nascent propaganda radio station known as XGOY, which was under the Chinese Ministry of Information. So while he's there, he's enduring things like air raids and witnessing the increasing starvation and poverty of Chongqing as the rest of the country has been pushed out of the coastal areas of China to, to return there. That's on one hand. But, you know, on the other hand, he also was wrestling with the Chinese government to have more access to write about the news and have access to the government. So I think those are some situations that really sort of formed his identity as wanting to publicize this war and and the immense toll it was taking on the Chinese people, but also wanting to be independent enough to do his own work as a journalist. Let's talk a bit about Anna Lee. I mean, she's, she's absolutely fascinating, and I can't help but suspect that during the course of writing a, about her, this brilliant, totally self-possessed, absolutely irresistible woman, you might have developed a little bit of a crush on her, as I, I you know, kind of did myself. What, what was she all about? Well, she was incredibly intelligent. She was the type of woman who wasn't, at a time when, when there was that sort of changing expectation of, you know, there was sort of the early moves of feminism, but I don't think she ever thought of herself as a feminist. She she was the kind of woman who just wanted to do the work that she wanted to do. She wanted to be a journalist, and, and early on she was interested in playwriting. And she ended up with a job at MGM as a scriptwriter. And, and that was mainly through a lot of dedication and perseverance on her own. And it's tempting to say that you know she sort of pioneered a lot of things for women in the 1940s, but I don't think she was driven by a pioneering spirit. I think she was just driven by she liked... And in having an intellectual life, and she liked writing, and she thought it was important to to sort of pursue the work that interested her. And that's something that I did become sort of enraptured by, was this idea that she was as sort of like individualistic as, you know, men were expected to be. And she wasn't going to let people sort of put her in her place. This included even later in the book, Mel and Annalie ended up on, on Corregidor, the fortress island of the Philippines. And mm-hmm. she was sort of shuffled off into a tunnel for the the women who had been evacuated there. And she refused to go there and instead wanted to be on the battlefield with Mel reporting from there. And she did do that. 
That's right. That's right. So the two of them had actually been at Stanford together. They had actually worked together on this, the paper that the Stanford Daily, uh, but mm. uh, hadn't developed any kind of a romantic relationship. That that and that came later. And of course, that there's a love story at the very heart of the book between uh, Annalee Whitmore, Nate Whitmore, uh, who became Mel's wife. Mel and Ali had an amazing range of uh, friends and acquaintances. Uh, it's almost a who's who of important figures of wartime China. Perhaps you could walk us through some of them. T.H. White, Song Mei Ling, Chiang Kai-shek, Douglas MacArthur, Henry Luce. Uh, it's an amazing list. Could you tell us something about how they got to know so many important people and some of those relationships? Yeah, I think it was... You know, at first it was through chance. Early in the book, Mel met Helen Keller on a boat back from China and talked to sort of assessed the the war situation happening in East Asia at the time uh, with her. But that was sort of a minor encounter. But over the years, you know, working for the Ministry of Information, Mel arrived in, in Chongqing just just as, as Teddy White was shifting away from there and uh, to work for Time magazine. And the two of them became very fast friends because... You know, they were both journalists in their mid-20s, uh, both f- from Jewish families, so a little isolated in their lives back home, who found a place in China and, and, a, and a desire to report on it, and sort of both got their first breaks there. And they quickly became pre- best friends living at the, the press hostel that was set up by Hong Tintong for for foreign journalists. And, you know, aside from Teddy White, uh, there's some other journalists like Israel Epstein there. Uh, mm. uh, Hugh Dean was a friend of Mel's from way back, actually, at the exchange program in Guangzhou. He was there at that first visit. He would have met Helen Foster Snow and Edgar Snow, but briefly. And so people like that were coming through the, the press hostel. And then through his work there and his work with the Ministry of Information and his particularly his radio work, he got to know Chiang Kai-shek and Sung Mei Ling in particular because of her uh, interest in reaching the American people and her, you know, having been Wellesley educated, she was that sort of conduit to the U.S. And Mel set up a broadcast for her along with her two sisters and Sung Mei Ling and, and uh, Sung Ching Ling, who he covered and took pictures of as they explored the city when the three of them were first together in Chongqing. It was Mel who was photographing them and and setting up their radio broadcasts. And that would continue, that friendship, that connection with with them would continue when Anna Lee eventually arrived and got a job as a, uh, she arrived with United China Relief, the aid organization that, that Henry Luce had helped set up, but really ended up as a script, as a speechwriter at first for, for mailing. And then People like Henry Luce, Mel met, you know, he met him by chance on a clipper flight from the U.S. to China. And Henry Luce, having been born in China, born in China, was, was so interested in Mel's interest and passion for the place. And of course, Mel had known Teddy White and that Henry Luce absolutely blown away by him on their conversations on the flight and hired him by the time they arrived in Chongqing to work for time. In fact, poached him from Newsweek. Right. Uh, so that started a great friendship. There were also people um, like Douglas MacArthur, who he he met and you know lived so close to uh, in Corregidor and during his reporting there in the Philippines. Carl Maidens, the sort of legendary life photographer, became Mel's best friend after they went to cover the fighting in in China in the interior of China and then continued together into the Philippines until they all made a rather 
dramatic decision about what they were going to do as the Japanese took over the Philippines. Which is where your book begins, right? Mel became somewhat close to John Hersey, even, who, who ended up writing his first book using most of Mel's writing. Oh, really? I, I, I did not know that. Hersey's book was based on Mel's, Mel's correspondence, huh? Yeah, his initial book, Men on Bataan, is almost entirely based on Mel's dispatches back from the Philippines. So if you were to ah, right. look at Mel's dispatches and then look at Men on Bataan, you'll see that they're almost entirely, save for some reporting he did back in the United States, Mel's words. So let's, let's, let's drill down a little bit about his friendship with T.H. With, uh, White, with Teddy White, uh, who's I mean, arguably the best-known World War II correspondent who was, you know, writing from China. The, the two of them had, as you, you pointed out, kind of parallel lives for a while. They were both somewhat alienated from Jewish families, both freelancing in Chongqing, both working for the propaganda department under the Kuomintang, under Jiang Kai-shek. Talk, talk about them. And, you know, and of course, T.H. White went on to co-author Thunder Out of China with Anna Lee afterward. What was the, the, the substance of these guys' friendship? It was definitely the working relationship. It was this experience of having been interested in China, sharing the hardship, but also having been interested in China's students, both both you know in, in their undergraduate years, Teddy White at Harvard and Mel at Stanford, uh, having traveled together a bit. They went on their way to Indochina together, although Teddy White continued on while Mel stayed to report on the Japanese occupation there. And then they continued a correspondence, even when Teddy White was back in the United States. Mel would sort of use Teddy White as his filter as he wrote to places like Time Magazine. He would write him, you know, he would send his dispatches back to Teddy, and then Teddy would look at them and use his understanding of China to then, you know, con- contribute to the rewriting of these articles that Time printed. You know, Time didn't use bylines on its articles. It sort of considered them all sort of the product of the editorial team. So Teddy gave Mel access to make sure that the dispatches that he sent from China were printed as, as accurately as possible in Time, although even then, as people like Whitaker Chambers gained more influence, what would happen there at Time Magazine would get sort of further and further distorted the further away it got from the source. So um, my father actually grew up in wartime Chongqing. You know, he grew up romancing on the stories about the flying tigers. He was born in 32, so when the war, you know, started, he was still quite young. But uh, they moved to Chongqing shortly uh, after, well, I guess it was in, in the late summer of 1937. But he was, you know, watching the dogfights, uh, telling me always about the, the bomb shelters. In fact, you know, he describes exactly the same system of lanterns uh, that you, you, you have in the book, watching them from the, the slope of, of Songlingpo and in, in, in Ba in Chongqing, watching the, the lanterns go up and then packing up my, his, his father's manuscript, his baby brother on his back, you know, hustle off to the bomb shelters. Uh, he also told me, and I remember hearing about this when I was a boy, uh, that, that night of absolute horror that uh, was documented, as it turns out, by Mel, you know, giving me a, a bit of a personal connection to this. So tell us about the, the bomb shelter tragedy of, of June 5th, 1941, and what role Mel played in, in publicizing it and, and the horror surrounding it. Yeah, this was a uh, just horrifying, horrifying disaster where Chongqing, Chongqing was was bombed, I think, 168 times during the time that Mel was there. And this disaster on June 5th, 1941 was by far the, the worst thing he experienced. He was safe in a press hostel bomb shelter as many. Actually, he was probably on the south side of the river at, at that point. 
um, because the press hostel had been bombed a number of times. But anyhow, he was there to witness the recovery effort after the shelter had been the, the the particular raid has had involved incendiary bombs and and thousands of people weren't able to get to their shelters in time or the shelters in many cases as as is the case in this one shelter which was the large municipal shelter the gates had been locked as successive waves of planes came so there were people rushing to get into this shelter yet at the same time because the shelter had been overcrowded and because it didn't it wasn't built with proper ventilation systems there were thousands of people within the shelter who were trying to get out but again the gates were locked and so there were stampedes in both directions and in the aftermath of these stampedes there was an sort of indescribably gruesome scene which mel describes in vivid detail that shows up in his dispatches back to time magazine uh, you know, people clawing at each other, people uh, tearing at each other's skin, at each other's clothes, and then, of course, the sight of bodies, even the next morning, just piled high outside of the entrances of these shelters. And he, he, he took photos, right? He took photos of this and sent them back. One of the photos is this iconic photo of bodies piled along a staircase, you know, in various stages of just destruction, and it's it was so horrible and so horrifying that in the U.S., you know, Life magazine ran some of these photos, and in the U.S., they were getting letters claiming that the photos couldn't be real, that they were propaganda, that they were mannequins that had been staged along the staircases to sort of amp up the the drive to war and the push for war. Of course, this was six months before Pearl Harbor, so the U.S. was still sort of nominally neutral, uh, even though it was sending aid to China. And so it was sort of literally an unbelievable tragedy. And I believe the number is 4,000 people who died in this one bombing, although at the time, you know, officials were really trying to downplay that, saying a couple hundred people had died. And Mel had reported on the fact that the officials were being questioned quite harshly by doctors and engineers who knew that, you know, there wasn't proper... Uh, construction of these this shelter and that there hadn't again hadn't been the right ventilation that had hadn't been built in a way that would sustain the you know ongoing pummeling and mm. it's a tragedy that's still recognized somewhat in Chongqing there's a there's a monument to it there although it's surrounded by a mall but it's one of those like things. everything is in China <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, it's not a tragedy, though, that Americans know about and that most people in the West, I think, know about. I think we know about the Blitz in in London, and we know about things like the firebombing of Dresden and, and catastrophes like that. But for some reason, there's this gap in our understanding of what happened in China from 1937 to 1945. Bill, uh, Mel was really a multimedia journalist a long time before that rather awkward word was used. Uh, he was an accomplished photographer and an avid user of 8mm film. Can you tell us a little bit about his photography and his filmmaking and you know how much of these materials are survived? Yeah, he, he did most of the filming, most of the, the 8mm filming when he was in Guangzhou, so before he was really working as a journalist. But you, but I've seen about an hour's worth of film that at some point had been digitized, probably in the early 80s. Uh, I shouldn't say digitized, it was transferred to VHS, and then I digitized that later. But there was a tiny bit from Chongqing, but maybe maybe five or ten minutes worth of just sort of random scenery there. So that's the film. 
I think he was interested in it and he was sort of curious about it. But the, my impression from his letters was that he, you know, preferred still photography still. But he really was eager to learn as much as he could about still photography and to take pictures, especially when he was traveling with Carl Maidens. He asked him for an education and what he was doing. And, you know, some of these photos are quite stunning pictures of daily life uh, in, in Chongqing and then also pictures of bombings and bomb damage and uh, some degree of military activity, although not a great number of that, a great amount of that. At one point, he was taking pictures in Haiphong, uh, the coastal city in Vietnam, uh, of, of a warehouse that the Japanese were occupying. And his sort of passion to get the right shot there got him arrested by the Japanese and briefly accused of being a spy alongside an American diplomat. And so, you know, he, he was willing to take risks to get photos. And he continued to take photos on uh, on the Bataan Peninsula and uh, on Corregidor and then on the great escape that he and Annalie had. They, they were some of the first photos that the U.S. saw of the fighting that was happening in the Philippines. And that was important to him, although he was a great writer and he was always improving his writing. I think um, had circumstances been a little different, he might have really continued his life as a photographer and got interested in that. Um, he also did a little bit of that radio reporting for the propaganda station and did more for the, for NBC. So you could really say he was multimedia with the film and the radio and the writing and the photography. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about some of the experiences that Mel and Natalie had after escaping Manila. Uh, as you said, they were they were actually on Bataan, on the Bataan Peninsula, um, of course, before the Death March, and on Corregidor uh, with MacArthur and his troops. They were, you know, living in the caves and enduring this, the ceaseless Japanese attack. Tell us about those days for the for the couple. I mean, they were still newlyweds. It was it's fascinating. Yeah, it was essentially their honeymoon. They had been married oh, a week or so before Pearl Harbor. And so they knew that war was coming and that signs of war were very imminent. And so as soon as Pearl Harbor happened and, and within hours the Philippines were attacked, they got to work and worked alongside one another. Mel was writing for Time and Life and Anna Lee was writing for an outfit called Liberty Magazine, but also supplying some additional reporting to help Mel out. And Mel knew because of his previous work with the Chinese government that he was probably on a Japanese blacklist. So when it was clear that the Jap Japanese were going to occupy Manila, he had to make a decision of whether to stay and hope that he could be kept under house arrest or, or maybe risk an escape. So he and Annalie fled along with a man named Clark Lee who'd reported in Shanghai. And he, the three of them got onto the very last boat leaving Manila at just after midnight on, on New Year's Eve. In fact, they were on the harbor when New Year's Eve struck and uh, didn't know where they were going, but ended up the next morning on Corregidor, where they continued for six weeks or so reporting on the defense of the Philippines that was centered at Corregidor and, and traveling with American troops to Bataan to see the sort of ragtag defense that was occurring there with the Americans that were hunkered down there and the Filipino scouts that were there. And they reported on things like the jungle hospitals that had been built there to treat soldiers and the American nurses that were helping out at those jungle hospitals. So there's sort of an iconic photo of the American nurses uh, bathing after working all day that, that Anna Lee had taken. And Again, as I think I mentioned, they were some of the first, they were able to eventually bring back some of the first photos that came to the U.S. from these places so that the Americans could sort of see what this war that had been sort of distant and isolated, you know, was like. 
And, you know, that isolation was important. The place was surrounded. The Japanese controlled the waterways around every part of the Philippines. And so when it finally became clear that Corregidor and Bataan were going to fall, they were told about a boat that was leaving a blockade runner that was sneaking in at night to deliver a shipment of rice. And they got passage on that boat and proceeded to sail sort of island to island and hiding out. By night. Right. Yeah, sailing by night and hiding out by day. And, you know, they were chased. There were reconnaissance planes and submarines and destroyers. And that's sort of the last sort of climactic point of the book, I guess. Um, Before the very sad denouement. And, you know, speaking of the sad denouement, um, what happened to Annalie after... Let's not spoil the... Yeah, I'm not going to ask you to describe the uh, surprise, well, not surprise, the ending of the book, but what happened to Annalie after... uh, What's the post story? Well, uh, as you guys have implied, there's a rather sad turn, and, you know, Annalie and Mel were eventually separated, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. Annalie returned to the United States, and of course was troubled at first but uh ultimately you know sort of just like mel she just wanted to get back to china as quickly as she could once she recovered and uh she went back to work with the time organization and uh aided again in part with by teddy white sort of speaking up for her and he had met her and mel in australia and the two of them had had sort of that was his first encounter with annalee and and of course he was sort of just as taken with her as Mel was, and and, uh, the two worked together very closely. And they ended up going back to China and working for time for a few years, or a couple years, but at that time, the uh, conditions were unraveling even further than they had been when Mel was there. And the tensions, of course, had started to tighten between between the communists and the Guomindang and Teddy and Annalie were quite critical of Chiang Kai-shek, and uh, Henry Luce had been incredibly loyal to Chiang Kai-shek and was outraged at their criticisms and their critiques and ended up forcing Annalie to quit. And the two of them, uh, Teddy and Annalie, ended up writing Thunder Out of China after being squeezed out of the Time organization. And right. it was a bestseller, probably one of the best books at the time written about about that era in China, his, Chinese history, and the attention from from that book ended up putting Annalie in the orbit of uh, Clifton Fadiman, who ran the Book of the Month Club, and eventually the two of them would become married and live the rest of their lives together. So, I mean, obviously in Thunder Out of China, which you know Annalie co-wrote, uh, there's a great deal about Mao and, and the communists, and as you said, a lot of criticism of Zhang, but in the book, it's not really clear how much Mel while he was still with us, actually knew or what he actually thought about the communists at Yan'an. Um, what did you learn in your research about what Mel thought of of, of Mao and his movement? I, I th- I'd say he was sort of ambivalent, um, not quite skeptical. He was he. I think he was eager to meet them and learn a little bit more about them. When he was traveling through China in 1937, right as the war started, he almost went to Yan'an and and then because of the start of the war he had to rush back to Beiping to make sure he could get on a ship back to the United States and make sure he could get out of the country before war really erupted so he wasn't able to make that trip but I think he was always sort of curious about the communists he was however sympathetic to Guomindang and he made friends there and he worked with them but in Chongqing during during the war you know Chao and Lai worked there and 
occasionally briefed the journalists that were working there and there's an impression i get from mel's dispatches and letters that he was open to hearing what they had to say but he Mm -hmm. didn't seem to have a strong opinion either way in terms of you know what what their goals were what their role was i think he was so focused on the war and the uh the sort of progression of the war that he couldn't he didn't develop a strong opinion however he did develop the same frustration that other journalists had with the Guamandong's effort to control the message. And he was w- one of right, a number of right. signatories of foreign journalists to formally petition Chiang Kai-shek's government for more access. Well, the book is called Eve of 100 Midnights, and the author, Bill Lasher, was kind enough to join us. Thanks, Bill. That was that was terrific. And uh, I can't tell you how much, I mean, if, whether you're interested in, in journalism, in the war, in uh, whatever your, your, your particular angle of interest is, uh, this is a book that I would very, very much recommend. And if you want to see some photography by and of uh, Mel and Annalie Jacoby, uh, please make sure to check out our podcast page. And Bill, meanwhile, I hope we'll you'll stick around and, and make a recommendation for our listeners with us. Absolutely. So before we get to recommendations, I, I do want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at, at SupChinaNews and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SupChinaNews. And if you like the Cynic Podcast, by all means, do leave us a positive review on the Apple App Store or on Google Play or wherever you go to review apps. And actually, this- if you don't like the Cynic Podcast, you can leave us a positive review too. We won't mind. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, it, it really does help us, and, and it means a lot to us, doesn't it, Jeremy? It does indeed. So on to recommendations. Uh, Jeremy, why don't you kick us off? Okay, one of my favorite things to do when visiting a new city is to turn on WeChat and lo- use the look around, the people nearby function, and check out how many Chinese people are in the immediate vicinity. Um, and obviously, there are a lot of them in California, Southern California, and so I'd like to recommend an uh, an article in the LA Times by David Pearson, who used to be in Beijing and I think is, you know, writing back in LA now, called This App Fuels the Illicit Trade of Dumplings and Pork Knuckles in Southern California, which makes it sound a bit more sinister than it is, but it's basically about how home cooks are selling their delicious Chinese delicacies using WeChat uh, in Southern California. And of course, it's a completely unregulated business. Um, but I hope uh, nobody decides to clamp down on it. And I hope this becomes <laughs> popular in Nashville, where I live, and where there's a terrible scarcity of Chinese restaurants. That's funny. I hadn't seen that. I hadn't seen that uh, article. But uh, I, I was going to pitch that idea. I mean, there's this here in in well in Chapel Hill, the whole Triangle area. There is a a fishmonger. They sell fish out of the back of their car. Really fresh, excellent shrimp, and uh, there's the sorts of fish that that Chinese people like crab, lobster, whatever, and I'm sure they're not paying taxes or, or meeting health inspections, but it's ch- it's cheap and very fresh, and, and they, they, they do it entirely through WeChat as well. There is one more thing, I've, if I may uh, take uh, make two recommendations, Absolutely. just because I, I've been thinking about it, because I saw this book on your bookshelf, Kaiser, that is one of my favorite books, not a China recommendation. It's called uh, The State of Africa. Um, a history of the continent since independence. Uh, the author is Martin Meredith. Um, and if you are uh, interested in knowing a little bit about the whole continent, it is probably the best 
single volume you could read that will give you a great overview of many, many countries in the African continent and how they've fared uh, since independence from the colonial powers. Yeah, I, I love that book. And it's, you know, it, it comprises basically the sum total of what I, I know about Africa. <laughs> but yeah, a great book, great recommendation. More than most Americans, I, I have discovered. Uh, <laughs> so, but anyway, that book is, is an excellent introduction. And even if you know a lot about Africa, it's a very good book. Low bar, man, low bar. Bill, you're up. What do you have for us? Well, I uh, I've recently been reading a book that maybe was recommended by someone on uh, on this podcast before, but Janice Y K Lee's The Expatriates. Uh, she's a Korean American woman, or, or born in Hong Kong, and it's it's a novel about the experience of being an expatriate in Hong Kong, uh, written from the perspective of I'm only about halfway through it, but the perspective so far of three different women. And it's just an excellently written novel that isn't the sort of novel I would normally pick up. I had heard a snippet of it read on some podcast and was so captivated by it that I picked it up from the library and uh, have just been devouring it this past week. And I look forward to finishing it. It's it's really incredibly descriptive. And it, though I have only been in Hong Kong for a few days, it, it brought out the experience of being an expatriate anywhere that is something that I wanted to think about. And then I also thought I might recommend this article that was written last week or so in the New York Times by Chris Buckley about the, the Jewish population in Kaifeng and their, their sort of increasing sense of pressure from the Chinese government. And I've always been fascinated with that tiny Jewish population in China and, and sort of its history and how it got there. And I think um, this article really sort of evokes that sense of fascination, but also the sort of question of what's, you know, what's in store for, for a, a religion that really sort of wasn't experiencing as much trouble as other religions in modern China. You know, my, my dad was actually born in that quarter in the area where the Kaifeng Jews live. His family's actually not actually from Kaifeng. Uh, so, I mean, we... we You're not be, actually Jewish. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. I know. Culturally, culturally <laughs> I am, maybe, but not, 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 not ethnically. Um, my, my dad was born on a, a street called Tiaojing Hutong. Tiaojing means pick out the tendon, uh, which is, you know, was named after this particular dietary observation of, of, of this sect that was believed to be some sort of, you know, strange offshoot of Islam by most of the other people there. Of course, they, they found out later that they were, in fact, hmm. Jewish. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, my my little brother persists in the belief that we actually are Jewish. I'll, I've tried to disabuse him of this. So. Well, he lives in New York, I guess. Uh, yeah, on the Upper West we'll Side. give him some credit he or works something. Works in theater. <laughs> He's gay, so, you know, hey, well... Anyway, uh, my recommendation actually does connect uh, to Mel and Annalee uh, through the person of Clifton Fadiman, uh, who is the editor of the publication I'm to recommend uh, in the 1970s, sort of at its height, and at the time that I was reading it. It's called Cricket Magazine. Mm. And for those of you with children um, who you hope to interest in literature, there's really nothing better for it. Uh, I, I loved it. I mean, it, 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 I think, got me interested in you know the life of letters it, it, it's just it's got poetry in it it's got terrific little short stories and it, it's not insulting to to the child at all it's it's, it's you know pretty it, it exposes you to some pretty sophisticated stuff it's got a couple of sort of precursors um i think one's called spider i didn't read these or even know about them i started reading cricket probably in fifth or sixth grade and and read it for a few years and um 
you know, I had, I had, they would send you after your annual subscription, uh, an LP that I used to have that had Clifton Fadiman actually reading some, some poetry and maybe uh, a short story. It was great. I remember its existence. Uh, I think maybe one of my brothers had it, but I, I don't remember anything distinct about it. Well, it's it's a hell of a lot better than like highlights or boys' yeah, absolutely. life. Absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah. it's 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 great stuff. Anyway, uh, I, one more recommendation since you guys are all doing two, I'm gonna I'm gonna do two as well. Um, the book Wonder, since we're talking about children's literature, by R. J. Palacio, which I'm kind of late too but you know but but my my son johnny is reading the book now and you know once in a while we read it together it seems to be really really quite quite profoundly affecting it's about a a a kid it's told the first part of it anyway later on shifts narrative voice a kid who has you know was was born with all sorts of i mean he he has a a cleft palate and that's just maybe the least of his uh, medical uh, conditions that he has at, at age 10 it all has already endured like 27 surgeries and he's off to a uh, he was homeschooled up until this point but now he's you know he's dealing with a, a private school uh really very very good writing i'm i'm very impressed anyway thanks again bill thanks for, for having me i really appreciate us. it yeah it was a real pleasure and i look forward to to hanging yeah. out sometime uh jeremy Great to have you, man. It was so good to have you out here in North Carolina. Yeah, despite uh, well, yeah, because of the bathrooms. <laughs> yeah, it, it comes to an end. It comes to an end today. Off you go back home. But uh, great to see you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Anla Cheng, Amadeo Timululo, and Soraya Darabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. And follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care. <laughs>